All right, welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys. This week I've got Vanessa Gonzalez with me. Welcome. Hi, good morning. I appreciate you coming on today. I want to talk a little bit about immigration law and what you're doing. And one of the reasons maybe we want you to come on the show was I think you put out some of the best content I've seen, and especially helpful for attorneys. I remember uh, about a couple years ago you did a video about what attorneys need to know about immigration law. And that was one that I watched that I was really impressed with. And it kind of made me rethink some of the ways that I do things because I realized that I never really took someone's uh, immigration status into consideration when doing client intake and it's, it's really something where you can lead somebody in the wrong direction if you're not aware. Sure, yeah. What got you interested and involved in immigration law? Well, um, I'll try to make that a shorter story. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's I guess that, that, that calls for a narrative. But I'm... Yeah. Um, I'm a first-generation college student. I grew up in Jacksonville, North Carolina. My parents um, met in the military. They were both Marines, and so we kind of moved around overseas a bit uh, when I was younger. And when I went to college, I didn't really have any idea about what a potential career path would be for me at all. I was just kind of happy to be invited to the party and be at college. Um, and so when I graduated out of Pembroke, I recognized that at that time, most folks that had bachelor's degrees like myself were still doing entry level um, wait, waitress jobs, things like that. And I figured to pay off student loans, I was going to have to kind of keep going. You get caught into that cycle, right? And so I decided to go to law school kind of just to keep the education going and climb the ladder. But then when I got to UNC, I really felt out of place. I really disliked uh, the subject matter of all our 1L classes that they choose for, you know, property and contracts. And in my kind of boredom and feeling like I made a poor choice, I stumbled upon um, postings that they would put in our mailroom for nonprofits and local organizations in the Triangle that were looking for law students to help do pro bono projects. And the vast majority of those were seeking someone who was bilingual in Spanish. So I found myself in contracts class, uh, not really paying attention unless I got called on, translating letters for prisoner legal services. Um, and then I started volunteering with the Justice Center and some other nonprofits. And because I was fluent in Spanish at that time, I have an undergraduate degree in Spanish, um, just the huge need in different legal organizations for someone that just can even have language accessibility brought me into the immigration sphere, specifically assisting domestic violence victims in uh, immigration cases. And that's where I kind of fell in love and found my niche. And that's that's kind of what I was wondering, because what I recall from law school was there's not a lot of uh, immigration law based curriculum. Not at all. And I think we may have had one class. I went to, to Campbell and we may have had in kind of a survey, broad scope, just right. an introduction to immigration law. Is that kind of how it was at Chapel Hill? Or I imagine there'd probably be more uh, classes available there. No, it's actually pretty similar. Um, in my 2L, we had sort of like that, a survey of immigration, immigration 101 type of thing. And to be honest, by the time I was eligible to take that class, through my internship experience, I already knew a lot of the stuff that we were learning in the class. But UNC Chapel Hill does have a very good immigration law and policy clinic, but you have to be a 3L. So by that time, I had gained a lot of uh, my experience and kind of what you would learn in a class setting through the actual work. Um, but the clinic is more practical, doing some policy stuff in the first semester and the second semester actually representing clients. Do you consider immigration to be kind of a standalone area of law in itself, or do you, or would you say that property you know, 
contracts, some of the, the topics we've talked about have immigration, they're, like, immigration is a subset within those. Um, I feel like I kind of sometimes joke that I get to be a little bit rogue in the local bar and kind of not care about networking and relationships with judges and DAs and things like that because I get to be kind of an island. Um, and so in that way, I think immigration is somewhat of a standalone area, but it does have intersections. Like you talked about the video that I did on, on advice for family practitioners or criminal law lawyers who have non-citizen clients so it intersects we even have a word crimmigration for folks that you know base their practices around advising criminal lawyers about the consequences of certain pleas and convictions on someone's immigration status do you practice criminal law or family law or property yourself or do you or do you just kind of do you have people you refer to that that kind of understand the the immigration implications of what they're of what the clients are doing so our office is almost completely immigration. Um, I dipped my toe into district court only for minor traffic offenses that affect my clientele. So if it's anything higher than a no operator's license that I can just go in and plea out, I'm not taking it. Um, here recently, outside of immigration, my criminal defense experience uh, just relates to my pro bono protest defense work um, and social justice initiatives. But outside of that, a family case, we will refer it. A criminal case, if it's not an NOL ticket, we will refer it. And then if any of our local colleagues who are nice enough to me at court, you know, have a question about one of their pleas, I tell them just to shoot me an email and I I'm well, see you got your you got your badge on right now. So I guess you're you're up there today. <laughs> yeah, we had an NOL in speeding. Somebody just hired me at the last minute yesterday. Cool. You know, one of the other videos I saw, and I listened to you on the, uh, the Let's Talk About Earthing uh, podcast, you're telling a story about um, catching some static, I guess, from the, the guards or the, the security about not displaying your, your um, I guess, your placard or your, right. your local or New Hanover County ID. And it kind of reminded me of, a, of when I first started practicing when I would walk through the security gates and you know, I kind of felt bad because there'd be lines sometimes. I'm like shuffling my way through the middle and trying to get through. And my old boss would, you know, I'd, I'd get up to the front and I'd start shuffling through my pockets and looking for an ID. Back then, I'm, you know, it used to be the bar card back then mm -hmm. before we got our own IDs, but I'd start shuffling through my bar card. And my old boss, like, what are you doing? You know, you just got to walk in here, like, 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 like you're, you're meant in the to, place. Yeah, like, you're, like you're in the place. You know, if you act like you're, um, you're not supposed to, you know, like you're, you're not a lawyer, or if they think that, then they're gonna, they're gonna question you, or they're gonna, you know, it, it'll be, um, you know, that's not the way to go in. And, and then it, I thought about what you said, and I was like, well, that makes sense, you know, that that, because that's kind of how I felt. Is like, well, I don't, I don't feel official to do right. that. But I mean, if if they're, if if you're getting treated differently from you know based upon maybe your age or gender or ethnicity or whatever it may be that's kind of i can see where that would be an intimidating kind of thing and it's not it's not right i'd be willing to bet that your former boss was an older white male exactly yeah. was, yes 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 yeah. so that's what i'll say so it's like yeah is, is an older white person it's easy to, to go in and do that and you see that all the time still today where an old white person will be like well how are you going to ask me for my id right. card don't you know me i've been in here for for uh, you know, for thirty years, and but if if you're on the other end of that spectrum, you know they they definitely want to want like let me see your ID. What are you doing here? Type exactly, of that. and that experience for me was really illuminating because after I caught so much static and walked into the courtroom, none of the attorneys had their placards on. No. <laughs> no. And that's just something that you know that happens to me around around North Carolina. 
I need to get a lanyard or something to carry. I've never had one. I, I keep it in my, my pocket or my, my wallet, and it's mine's so mangled. It looks like the, the state of Idaho. <laughs> it's what, like I, I can hold on to it by a tip, and it's it's all torn up, and it's from seven years ago. But, um, you know, I still I still show it up there because I'm, I'm, I, I understand it's their job, and I don't expect them to, yeah. to, to know me or recognize me or anything like that. Um, so... In, in the immigration context, when you're, where do these issues get resolved, I guess, is, is what I want to know. Because I know, you know, sometimes I'll see you posting about you've gotten someone's visa approved or you've gotten someone's immigration set or that you've gotten, a, I don't even know the, the correct terminology to use, right. but where are these decisions made? So the vast majority of the work that I do is affirmative filings and they get, generally decided in service centers throughout the United States by Citizenship and Immigration Services. Those are things you would file affirmatively, like work permits, green cards, renewals of things like DACA, TPS, etc. Um, and most of that is just, it's paperwork. Um, and some of these things don't come to interview. And so you, we're tasked with building this beautiful packet of telling someone's eligibility and whole life and why they should be benefited to this. And we send it to a P.O. box, usually in Chicago. Um, and I just imagine these big giant rooms that are a P.O. box. And then from there, they distribute it to different service centers in Virginia and Texas and California. Um, and then we wait forever. And then we get a letter in the mail that's really exciting for cases that are uh, resident residency cases, citizenship cases, things like that, they will first go off to that P.O. box, then be distributed to a national benefits center, which is like, I imagine being like a men in black type hub where things go. Um, And then if it passes muster there, it gets sent to your local field office. And each jurisdiction based on address has a local field office. So for this area, ours is in Durham. So you might have seen me post outside of the USCIS in Durham, which annoys me because it's called the Raleigh Field Office. Uh And I feel like someone national headquarters just decided that like RDU and so they called it Raleigh, but it's definitely in Durham. It's off the Miami Boulevard exit, if you know where that is. Um, And that's where we will go for interviews. But because immigration law is federal, like Durham is my most common. That's where I will go when I attend interviews with clients. But it's based on the jurisdiction of the client's address. So um, I have a good uh, amount of clients in Dillon, South Carolina, and other other surrounding counties. Um, And because I'm only doing immigration law, it's not any family or traffic stuff outside of North Carolina, um, I can take all of those cases. But they might drag me to Charleston. the end of last year, I went to Memphis for a client that was living in a different state, but that was closest to her um, for her interview. And then if someone is in removal proceedings, and that's the new term, it used to be called deportation, and then there was a legal change, and now it's called removal proceedings, um, that our removal court is in Charlotte. And um, if it's an old case, I might have to go as far as Houston because that's where the person's removal order was several years ago. And when we reopen the case, like I got to go or change the venue. But it depends on whether it's affirmative or defensive. So is, you submit your application, and does it happen sometimes that the application just gets approved and there's no, I guess you called it an interview? Um, only certain cases are waiver interview, right? Um, U visa victim-based cases for folks who have been victims of 
serious crimes like domestic violence, felonious assault, things like that. Those things go to a special office in Vermont that handles all Violence Against Women Act cases, U visa cases, and none of those cases have interview. Now, if someone gets a VAWA and then applies for residency, they'll get sent to, to Durham. Um, so it depends on the case type. DACA renewals, the clients have to go to do their fingerprints, but there's no interview process for renewals for those, or even for initials. Usually it's residence cases and, and citizenship cases that will get called to interview. In the good old days, pre-Trump, um, USCIS had a lot more discretion for simple green card cases to waive the interview if there was enough proof in the packet, and those cases are generally fiancé visas that turn in the green card. So because there's so much vetting, by the time someone comes in on a fiancé visa, they've already reviewed the entire relationship. The person's been interviewed at a consulate in their country. And so the interview here is kind of secondary, and they have the ability to waive interview for those. Also, refugee adjustments for the same reason. Um, and sometimes for parents of United States citizens that entered on a visa, Every now and then we can just get a green card in yeah. the mail for them. What what happens at an interview? <laughs> so like I, I wonder like first of all who's the is it is it a panel or is it or is it one is it a judge or who who uh, who's doing the interviewing? No, these interviews are extremely informal and formal at the same time. It, it, I'll try to explain. Um, and it's actually funny. I just watched a Netflix special last night that had me tickled by this comic called Mo Ammer. Uh -huh. um, and he was a refugee from Kuwait in the United States. And he talks about traveling with his refugee document and how it confuses everyone in the airport. And he was talking about his interview at USCIS. And my boyfriend was laughing at the like some of the questions are really ridiculous. Like, were you a Nazi between 1931 <laughs> and 1934? And I'm laughing, but I'm like, no, that's an actual question, yeah. and that happens every time so, I go so to Durham. So they Durham. just have their list, and they a, haven't updated the list in some time. Right, and they read the questions off the form. Um, but it's informal in the way that the adjudicators are not lawyers. They do not have a legal education. Some of them are very seasoned, and they know immigration law better than some lawyers. Some of them are not. Um, unfortunately, recently I've seen an influx of ex-CBP officers that got a little too old and maybe wanted a desk job and don't really know what happens on the other side of when they detain folks. So basically, they'll go into the questions on the form, but if it's a marriage-based case, they'll get into questions about their relationship and things like that. They can break free from the script? Yes. Um, now, they can only break free so far. That's why it's helpful to have an attorney there. Um, Generally, they don't get too crazy into the questioning like over a marriage unless they determine there are enough red flags to do what's called a Stokes interview, which is basically a fraud-based interview. And I have some clients that I prep for that from jump, and I say the age difference is too big, um, or your cultural difference is too big, um, or you've been married too many times, lady. This is the, the third... Yeah. This is the third younger Hispanic male that you've been married to. Just be prepared that this is going to be a Stokes interview um, because you can kind of tell with experience uh, which ones are going to be separated and interrogated in a different way. How personal can they get in a Stokes interview? Um, they don't, they are not supposed to get personal as far as like intimate details of your relationship, but some of their favorite questions. Um, to get intimate in an appropriate way are not just asking like what's your address but what type of residence is it is it an apartment or a house how many bedrooms how many bathrooms do you have pets what types of pets what names are they and then they always try to catch you at the end with 
What time did you guys get up this morning? What did you have for breakfast? Who drove? What kind of car do they have? Because if you're genuinely married to someone, you're not going to say, hey, meet me at immigration at 8 o'clock, right? You're going to drive together. You're going to know what time your spouse woke up if you sleep together. They're not really supposed to say, you know, how many times do you get intimate with your partner? But they'll get around that by asking questions that prove that they slept in bed together and things like that. Gotcha. And and so on that is... Does your score pretty much have to be 100? Like if you slip up on a minor detail, is that, do you fail the test or? Um, no, and there's no scoring in it. And so that's what's difficult with some of these these cases is that sometimes the officers go really left and it's discretionary. Sometimes we have to get supervisors involved if we think it's gone too far. Um, I've had cases that I think are the most easy, straightforward cases. And then we just get an officer that is just, they're having a day that they want to make sure, you know, and, and go into it. But what they're looking for are obvious inconsistencies. And if you have a case like that, even if the marriage is completely bona fide, um, unless you have a jerk of an officer, you don't tend to get like a denial right away. You'll get a request for different additional evidence or a notice of intent to deny and have a chance to respond. But sometimes what I'll see with officers, if I feel like they're not completely satisfied at the interview and I can usually tell, I'll tell clients, be prepared for this to drag on longer than you expected. Because if it starts with a fraud interview and the officers, you don't hear within a month or two that the case is resolved with an approval, I think that these officers play relationship chicken with folks and they'll extend out their decision and say, we're still doing security background checks. We're still working on our decision because they think if this relationship isn't real, it's going to bubble over and it's going to expose itself over time. Do they ever do security on the people like surveillance? They can in certain cases. Um... It doesn't happen in many of my cases because, I mean, if someone doesn't pass muster of a relationship in my office, then I'm not going to take the case for ethical reasons. Um, I've heard of that from colleagues um, that they'll stop by, ask neighbors things, do things like that. But I think as a matter of resources, that's not as common as you might see in the movies. And the way that the law works as well is that when you have a marriage-based green card, this is not like a magic ticket forever right so uh the immigration marriage fraud act kind of combats a lot of that and helps manage the resources because it says that if someone gets a green card within the first two years of marriage they have to come back a second time and 90 days before that green card expires they don't get a full green card the permanent one they get what's called a conditional residency and 90 days before that conditional residency expires the couple together has to file another application proving all the joint taxes joint bank statements showing they've still been living together etc and a lot of cases we get are when somewhere between the additional green card and when the couple's supposed to apply together, the relationship actually has fallen apart. But not for fraud reasons, but usually because the petitioning spouse turned out to be abusive um, or because there was a legitimate divorce. And you can still apply by yourself, but it raises the scrutiny, scrutiny standard and you have to demonstrate different types of evidence. Do you do primarily family-based immigration or do you do any employment-based immigration? Our firm does almost no employment-based. We usually refer anything employment-based out. Um, we do a lot of family-based and a lot of humanitarian-based. So my the beginning of my career was almost completely for domestic violence victims and crime victims seeking immigration benefits 
um, either through their cooperation with law enforcement and the prosecution of their cases or through a Violence Against Women Act provision. Um, and then we expanded to, to family-based. But the reason why we don't do a lot of employment because it is a whole other side of the coin, even though it's immigration law, it's completely different um, structure, is that our firm tends to represent undocumented folks and their families and mixed status families in North Carolina. And most folks that are already within the United States undocumented cannot benefit from a petition from an employer. So if they call us and say, my boss is really cool, he wants to petition me, most of the time their unlawful presence bars are not going to make that a case that they can do. Um, so folks that do employment tend to, their client is not the immigrant community that's already here. Their client are these American companies that are seeking um, foreign workers. Understood. So w when you mentioned the Violence, Violence Against Women Act situations, is that for victims of violence in the United States, or can somebody that that's been a victim in another country apply to to immigrate here as a result of the the violence they endured? No, Violence Against Women Act. Um, the immigration provisions that come out of that tend to be things that have occurred here in the United States. So first, um, it provided benefits for folks, and it's called women, but it's for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, it just got looped into that greater legislation that continues to get reauthorized. And it basically was Congress recognizing that our immigration system in some ways contributes to the cycle of abuse in that the citizen petitioner has the control over being the one who has to petition their spouse, right? And so if you're an abuser, um, you would hold that over your abused spouse's head. I'm not going to file your papers. I'm going to get you deported. You can't leave me X, Y, Z. So in trying to combat that, um, in a reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, Congress decided that if someone can show who's a non-citizen that they're married to a resident or a spouse and they're suffering physical violence or extreme cruelty in their marriage and they actually lived with this person and it was an actual legitimate marriage, so you still have to prove the marriage stuff even if you're not together, um, that they can petition themselves and get residency as if that person petitioned for them. But it's uh, it's a pretty high threshold we have to actually show um, that they've been subject to the extreme cruelty or the domestic violence. And then that was later expanded into the U visa. Um, and Congress basically said, well, why do we only care about undocumented or non-citizen victims of domestic violence if they're married to a citizen, right? What about everybody else? And recognizing as well that Law enforcement had a hard time policing undocumented communities because of this fear that if I report a crime, I might be deported, as well as criminals taking advantage of that same concept and saying, I'm going to victimize this population because they're less likely to call the police. And so they expanded um, the U visa, which is different um, for folks who've been the victims of serious crimes that have cooperated with law enforcement or prosecutors in some way in an investigation and a prosecution to have some sort of a visa that they can apply for. Is there any sort of immunity for undocumented um, people that you know want to report a crime or that are involved in maybe they're the, the victim of a automobile accident or, or something like that? Is there is there any what, what happens if you're if you're undocumented and you you know you feel like you need to sue somebody or you, you want to report some crime in your neighborhood or, or right. things like that? You can do all of those things. There's no type of immunity or special protections. Um, the U visa was meant to be something like that for crime victims um, but U visa cases are capped at 10,000 approvals per year, and we've met that cap 
repeatedly for the last five, six, seven years. And so the wait list is so long that if I got a new U visa case right now and filed it, that person probably wouldn't even get their U visa for the better part of a decade. Um, and they could be removed from the United States at any point during that. But as far as like automobile accidents, getting a personal injury attorney, workers comp, things like that, regardless of your immigration status, you still have legal rights to those types of things. Do you advise people to pursue those rights or, or do you think it makes more sense to kind of stay off the grid, so to speak? No, for sure. If someone has a legitimate claim for personal injury, workers comp, um, if they've been the victim of a crime, I'm always advocating for folks, regardless of their immigration status, to pursue their legal rights. Same thing, I think a lot of folks think that if you don't have um, legal status here that you can't um, be under the purview of family courts. So folks let custody matters and, and even you know kind of dangerous situations in the household get a little bit further than they should because um, they're not aware that they're still within the jurisdiction of our family court and our family court judges are not permitted to you know, exclude them based on not being citizens of the United States. So how, how do most removal proceedings arise? Is it a result of raids or is it a result of just somebody figure or someone reporting a person that's undocumented or what's the most common situation where you see those, those situations arise? In North Carolina, those uh, examples are a lot less common. Most folks get placed into removal proceedings after encounters with law enforcement, so arrests. Prior to 2013, when there was some changing in our misdemeanor um, classes for, for certain traffic misdemeanors, um, unfortunately we saw most folks, most folks that don't really have a criminal record getting placed into removal proceedings after getting arrested for no operator's license. But as you probably know, uh, after some changes that happened in our um, our criminal code in around 2013, now it's more likely that something like that you would just get a citation, right? But say you forget to go to court, then you get a failure to appear, they put out a warrant, and then you get pulled over again, and then they arrest you on that warrant. You could technically still get arrested for a traffic thing, so that's how most folks do. It's from an arrest. Um, but that doesn't mean that raids and things don't still happen, especially under this administration. Prior administration, something like that, if you heard someone say, well, I'm going to call an immigration tip line and I'm going to tell them that my neighbors, we kind of just laugh at them and be like, no one cares. They don't have the resource to prioritize your stupid little call. Um, and the only time I would see things like that actually happen would be close to border areas. So like I had some clients from Myrtle Beach that were doing concrete work up towards upstate New York. And because that's closer to Canada, um, there's more CBP presence. And those guys have a little bit more time and resources to when someone calls and this is actually what happened at a like motel there's a, a group of perceivably undocumented folks here and I think it actually in that case was really crappy I think it was the foreman of the construction site who didn't have his stuff together and got upset at my guys and just called ice on them but that's more few and uh, far between it happens most frequently by getting arrested and then once you're taken to the local jail you're Prince will ping ICE, ICE sends over an ICE detainer, um, and then local law enforcement will hold them for ICE to come and pick them up. And unfortunately, also by applying for benefits and being denied. And that's a big problem within the immigration law field is that there's a lot of fraud. There are a lot of uh, unlawful practice of law. Um, 
there are folks called notarios that represent themselves as legal professionals and that's confusing to folks from Central America because in their countries someone who's a notario isn't a public notary like we have here they're actually a paraprofessional in the law and can do divorces and other types of things and so it confuses the community and folks will say hey I'll file this for you and get you a work permit and people are like great here's my money get a work permit think this person is the best attorney they've ever had not realizing they're not an attorney and don't know they filed an asylum case and because after an asylum case has been pending so many days you can get a work permit not realizing that when your asylum is denied you go directly to removal court and so they might have a work permit for a year and think this guy was great not realizing they threw themselves into deportation yeah, I noticed, uh, I've, I've seen that sometimes in, in communities you'll see notario signs. And I always thought that was Spanish for notary. I didn't realize that was a whole like subset or a, or a type of, like, I guess an agent, or I don't know what you'd call it. Like, I know they've got advocates in, um, for Social Security uh, benefit proceedings. Yeah. You, you don't necessarily have to be an attorney for that. but um. It's a gray area. Sometimes folks actually are notaries, and you'll see it also where people are doing, like, cartas de poder or like a power of attorney that's not that official for um, for certain countries when you're traveling with minors um, you need to send whoever's going on the trip with your minors something with a copy of your passport and basically just a notarized letter that say I Vanessa passport number whatever know that my son Max will be traveling with my sister to Mexico and back um, not for our reasons but because the Mexican authorities expect to see something like that on their end and so that's not even something that you know is really a legal thing it's a personal letter by someone and they're notarizing it so something like that totally um, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of these places that are like multi-services types of places like we do tax returns we do cartas poderes but they're also doing immigration yeah. work and gotcha. that's where it crosses the line to be unlawful practice of, of law or unlicensed practice of law. You've mentioned a couple times changes um, during the Trump administration. How, how, to what extent and what are you observing as, as far as the way immigration is being treated differently under this administration? Um, it's horrible. It's, it's the worst. I try to explain it to people like that meme of that dog with the house on fire and the dog's <laughs> the like everything is fine yeah, yeah. and that's immigration attorneys we're the dog with like a little spray bottle of water um that's what it's been like since uh the election and some of the major changes have been uh priorities so under the Obama administration, there was a DHS memo that said these folks are priorities for removal. So even if someone was undocumented and they didn't have a pathway to get status, but they landed in removal, like folks with no license tickets, right? Um, this memo said tier one are people with felonies, terrorists, things like that gang members. Tier two are people with significant misdemeanors like DWIs, domestic violence, drug charges. Tier three are people that just got here recently, they don't have a history in the United States, or they abused the visa program. And that priorities memo would give discretion to ICE agents in the field that get an old lady who's never had a traffic ticket before, who has four kids, you know, and has been here since the 90s to say, we're not gonna place you in removal. Um, and then if she does get placed in removal, gave attorneys the ability to try to work out deals with opposing counsel and say, she's not one of these priorities, look at all her soft factors. And they would, wouldn't terminate the removal proceedings, but they would administratively close them. Directly after the election, uh, Trump had DHS 
create a new memo vacating the prior priorities memo that literally just said everybody everybody so uh, uh, terrorist is treated the same as a as the old, old lady yeah. mm -hmm. and their prosecutorial discretion is dead if someone lands in your caseload you fight till the removal order um they also took away uh, discretion from judges to give longer continuances to wait while USCIS might be processing an application. They used to admin close or give several continuances to wait for someone to get the green card if they can prove that they have an actual case pending. That died. They raised the stakes um, significantly because aside the example that I gave about asylum cases, most other cases, if you apply to USCIS for a benefit, and you're denied so long as it's not because you have some nasty criminal history you would get a letter that says sorry we're not giving you a green card you should probably leave because you're here undocumented but you're denied and you lost your time and your money but no one is looking for you right because USCIS is over here ICE is over here they're all under DHS but they're not always communicating there was a memo about two years ago that instructed USCIS to send every denial just about every denied case to the Executive Office of Immigration Review, which is the deportation court, to issue notices to appear to these people. So now even trying to get lawful status for folks who can has much higher stakes because if you lose the case, if you get a bad officer who doesn't like your questions about how many bedrooms you have, the consequence on the other side of that now is that you are then defending yourself in, in deportation instead of maybe filing and trying again with better evidence. I mean, those are just some of the examples. There's been, I, I could go on all day about it. In fact, I did a poster for the Women's March here that was on uh, one of those trifold poster boards for like science fairs that was completely covered with all of the anti-immigrant policies that have passed since the last election, including canceling DACA, TPS, et cetera. What type of presence does ICE have in, in just your standard community, like in southeastern North Carolina? Are there ICE officers on the beat, so to speak, or does ICE have an office, or is ICE more of a, a centrally located thing like out of um, certain offices um i'm not really an expert on that because i try to limit my <laughs> encounters <laughs> with ice myself as yeah. much as i can but they do have um field offices but it's a little bit more tactical so i would explain ice officers to be like you have your kind of standard day-to-day -day ones that are going to go to the courthouse and everyone that's on an ice hold they're going to go and pick up who they need to pick up that day that would you would consider more in the context of maybe criminal law like your regular probation officer let me go get my clients for the day, yeah. right? And then everyone else, if they're looking for folks with unexecuted uh, removal orders and things like that, you would consider them to be more kind of like uh, the guys that park behind my office. I see them every day and it makes me laugh as I'm making my, my copies because they're all plainclothes officers and you know they're like the narcos uh, of WPD, but they, they all kind of look like brewery bros, yeah. but they have their clipboards and they have their meetings in the parking lot. They got beards? Yeah, they got beards <laughs> and the like, um, Kind of like trucker hats or like dad hats and and what's a dad hat? A dad hat is like um a billfold hat with it's not like a snapback. It has like an adjustable thing in the back. Uh huh. Um, it's a term in women's fashion for that hat. Okay, um, I was like, I, I don't think I've ever. I, I you like, probably own. Ask your wife if if, if you I have, have a, dad a dad hat, and I bet you she'd be All like, right. yes, I wear it sometimes. <laughs> it's right. a thing. All right. Well. So they're they're out there. Do you ever feel like like sometimes they're observing who's coming in and out of your office or anything like that? 
God, I hope not. Yeah. And I'm ready to fight if they are. But um, I think that that is something that's a rising concern um, under this administration is that it's not um, it's not a paranoia that agents would pose as clients and seek a consult with immigration attorneys. It has happened before, and we chat amongst ourselves like, I had the weirdest consult today. Um, and folks trying to kept, catch also the immigration bar up, because as much as uh, immigrants are directly affected and under attack by this um, administration, our legal practice is as well. Um, and it's happened to folks within, you know, even our local region that have had an investigation by ICE, by HSI, into their practices and have gotten caught up for certain things. Yeah, it seems almost like an entrapment situation if you're sending officers in to pose as potential immigration clients and yeah. trying to see if you'll bend the rules or, or something along those lines. Yeah, it's definitely happened, and I mean, I... I I kind of feel a way about entrapment, but I also feel there there have been folks that were doing messy things that got caught up that way, and they're just as much a problem to our bar as well. So folks that are creating fake crimes for U visas or coaching their clients on what would be a winnable asylum claim about facts that maybe didn't happen, we do also want to weed those folks out of the practice because that kind of cheapens the area of law, makes it difficult for the rest of us, just like the notarios do. So I don't think that that's ever happened to me, but if it had, it's probably someone that left my office disappointed because I told them that they were permanently barred for multiple entries under 212A9C, and they go, well, you're my lawyer. What I tell you is confidential. Why we can't just say I entered in 1990? And I'm like, because I've got six yeah. figures in student loans I'm not going to be able to pay if I, lo if I lose my yeah. license over your case. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm interested that you said that you do some pro bono work with, um, I believe you said, like kind of protest defense. Yeah. So how are protest? I know that that's been real active over the summer with everything that's going on with the police. And uh, what have, how are you seeing those cases treated? Um, it depends, right? So we had an initial wave. Um, I don't primarily do criminal defense, and I was at a lot of the protests, as I am not just for the recent ones post-George Floyd. If it's an immigration issue, if it's a women's right issue, I tend to be a little bit of a rebel rouser, and that's the community that I like to, you know, that in Wilmington, I've been more accepted among folks, like-minded folks, right? And so um, recently, over the summer, um, there's been a lot of protests specifically about racial justice um, after the George Floyd uh, murder that there was a slew of initial arrests and they were treated very poorly, in my opinion, here. What's the typical charge? Um, most of those were failure to disperse. There were some that were impeding traffic. Um, some were resisting and things like that. And the the local um, district attorney's office was kind of playing hardball with all of those because the situation had got so politicized. So unlike uh, an individual resisting case where I might go into court and say, hey, this is what happened. Can we work out some sort of informal defer like deferred prosecution? What can we do uh, for a dismissal here? Or are we going to have to take it to trial? And the DA would kind of choose independently. These are the facts of this case. And no, I'm not going to give you that. Um, and they have their own reasons around what they want to pursue. But there was a blanket policy with the first slew of arrests that were 
it was it was complete hardball it was everyone was told at first appearances you plead guilty or you take it to trial there's there's nothing in between and you could tell that the assistant district attorneys were not making that decision it was something that needed to be a blanket policy around these cases they then assigned them all the same trial date um, and it was almost like special protest day and everyone was kind of wondering what was going to happen. And because I'm not primarily a criminal defense attorney, right, I don't just jump into things that are not my lane. Folks do that with immigration all the time. That's how people get deported. So I also don't pretend that I am the master of the rules of evidence and I was going to come in there and tear things up. Um, the group of pro bono attorneys that I was working with is being mentored by some really boss protest defense attorneys in the triangle through Emancipate NC, some law professors and things like that. So they trial prepped with us. They uh, you know, gave us sample motions, did things like that. So we were kind of like a co-op of volunteers. Um, and unfortunately, on that trial date where everyone was scheduled, at the last minute, everyone was offered a conditional discharge, which required 12 um, months of unsupervised probation and a certain amount of community service and there was no flexibility for inform informal dismissals or anything like that and so it was like take it to trial or take this deal this is the last thing we're going to offer to you and unfortunately all but one on that day took the deal um, and the one who did try it on that day I think is going to be pending appeal um, but my concern around that energy was that some of these crimes, uh, the failure to disperse, some of these resisting crimes, are the same kind of misdemeanor as my clients' no license tickets, right? During this same time, I have clients paying me for no license tickets and then calling me and saying, hey, I got a letter from the DA's office. They just threw my case out because of COVID and they need to clear the docket. And so I was giving refunds on refunds on refunds for traffic cases because they kept disappearing off of the docket. But these protest cases that are similarly qualified misdemeanors are getting pushed, 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 pushed. And I think that it was kind of... Um, a political move to say you guys need to calm down or we're going to put you into the system because now unfortunately all of the folks who were initially arrested are on 12 months of unsupervised probation they'll go back out to demonstrate and i'm not naive enough to not believe that those same officers who knew who was in court that day are going to see who they know who's on probation and wouldn't be prone to re-violate them for something simple like impeding traffic again um, and those have more severe consequences now because that takes away the conditional dismissal then they'd get hit with both and most of these folks are college students um, don't have previous criminal records but now after the first trial date i'm not going to belabor it much longer i still have some trickling in and i think once we got around so much media coverage and there needing to be a statement about it we're seeing them getting handled like regular daily cases yeah is is there any what are the consequences of a fair to disperse or something like that or, or you know, it doesn't seem like that'd be that serious of a crime. I, I think it's no. a low-level misdemeanor. It's a low-level misdemeanor that wouldn't get an active sentence unless you had like a ton of priors. And so the actual consequences would be not dissimilar than what they would accept with the, with the um, conditional discharge. It, it's just in my opinion, there was a lack of uh, flexibility and discretion that 
you know, we've seen prosecutors in our county used before, and I, I don't doubt that that's also because the nature of these protests was very critical of our local law enforcement who did the arresting, as well as very critical of our local prosecutors. And so um, I think those things kind of all collided into one big day, and that was the compromise. Thankfully, um, since then, I think that things have quieted down and everyone feels a little bit less pressure, and folks have been given the flexibility to make plea agreements, treat the cases as they come, not treat every protest defense case as if it's equal, um, and look at the defendants and the specific fact case scenarios a little bit differently. Gotcha, yeah. I, that's really interesting to me, and, and I, it's kind of it's a little bit disappointing as well, but I'm glad that it seems like there's been at least a uh, somewhat fair result for everybody, or at least not having to... Um, um, have the the mountain of how they would have handled the mass trial or whatever that you're talking about with yeah. everybody on the same. Yeah, we were day. we were prepared I, for it, but I think that that conditional discharge was the move to yeah. save the judge. I think she would yeah, have I been unhappy. Have been, yeah, that's a lot of trials to, to do in a day. I'm sure over the same charge yeah. with the same officers, same facts. Yeah. Well, um, could you tell us a little bit about your practice? Sure. And uh, just kind of what. Where you are, what you, I know we, we've talked about you do family-based immigration, but uh, just a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, so my office is called the Law Office of Vanessa A. Gonzalez, PLLC. We're downtown on 4th Street. Um, we're an all-female office. Um, we handle primarily immigration matters, everything from maintaining your status, like renewing green cards, renewing DACA, to obtaining status, like... Um, lawful permanent residency to elevating your status, like moving from residency to citizenship, uh, removal or deportation defense, um, victim-based immigration benefits and things like that. And occasionally, when need be, I'll slide in district court for a no license ticket, um, or sometimes I will only do you know, no contest divorces by summary judgment, um, and generally those are for folks whose spouse is still in another country and a local family attorney is like, ah, well, how am I supposed to do this? Or the language barrier is a bit much. Otherwise, I tend to refer out most of the family stuff. Gotcha. Do you have to do Geneva Convention for service in those situations or... Um, no. So most of those cases that I deal with that are either like summary judgment divorces or... Um, sometimes special immigrant juvenile custody orders. What I seek to do is personal service similar to that we do here and mail it directly and ask the other party to just kind of, you know, sign the acceptance of service. Gotcha. And that's been pretty successful. Um, thankfully, I haven't had one that we've had to deal with kind of international, um, you know, service and by publication. And that, that's, that's happened in some of my cases, but those be the ones that I'm like, hey, I'd prefer to refer this yeah, out. No we don't, we well, don't have the capacity to handle all of that all at once. I saw that you posted something uh, a day or two ago saying that you were, you were on the brink of a thousand followers on, uh, on Instagram. Did you make it to a thousand? This yet? morning, yes. Right, well, congratulations. Thank you. I'd encourage anybody listening or watching to, to follow the law office of Vanessa Gonzalez. Um, there's tons of great content. I would say for attorneys, um, I think you put out good and helpful content that uh, I've certainly learned from. And so I would, I would encourage anyone to follow your firm. And I appreciate you coming to spend some time with us and, uh, and talking to me about immigration law. Thanks so much for having me.